2: Your refrigerator after a long day seeing that icy cold Coors light can or bottle in your fridge the answer is no there's nothing better that's why when it's time to chill you choose Coors light it's mountain cold refreshment made to chill Coors light is the one i choose when i need to unwind so that's why when you want to hit reset reach for a beer that's made to chill get Coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart cores brewing company golden colorado and as always, celebrate.
3: We are breaking down all aspects of Yankee baseball. This is the Bronx Pinstripe Show with your host, Andrew Rotondi and Scott Reinen. Let's go.
2: What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Bronx Pinstripe Show, episode 171. The Yankees, with the late-night series win last night, Scott, huge, saved their season if we want to win the AL East.
3: Yeah, it was a big, big series. Obviously, we, we've been talking about this one and kind of circling it. It's the last chance you're going to get head-to-head at the Red Sox, and they took care of business. I feel like the stadium was as, as hyped as it has been in a very long time. It was a playoff atmosphere. The Yankees came. You could tell that they had a little bit more... I don't want to call it energy, but there was a little something there. They, they definitely felt the pressure of that series, and they came out and performed very well. It was a huge series, and it was a lot of fun to watch, actually. Great baseball.
2: Well, the Yankees played like they had something to play for, and the Red Sox were playing like they had already locked up the AL East. That's just from, from my perspective watching those four games.
3: Well, I, I think also you're seeing a rejuvenated Yankees team, too, because we're seeing all of our bodies come back healthy Granted, we had one go down, but they're all starting to come back. And I feel like the vibe on the team is just changing again. We're starting to feel that early season uh, exuberance, excitement. These guys are look like they're having fun again. And that's that's a big part of it. And the Red Sox, when they're not doing well, I don't know, they just look like a bunch of miserable sons of bitches. So, you know, it makes me happy when I look over and see these guys pouting and just like making, um, just not having fun And the Yankees. Completely, you know, just embellishing everything they're doing and and having a great time. It's fun to watch. I love seeing the Red Sox struggle. It's uh, probably one of my favorite things to do. It's your favorite pastime. Baseball is not favorite your favorite
2: pastime. pastime. Watching the Red Sox lose is your favorite pastime.
3: Yeah, and it's becoming it's becoming even better. I mean, we talked about this resurgence in the rivalry and all these young players, and I I, I truly am starting to feel it even more and more. I feel like every single time we play now, it's been. It's been just getting more progressed as far as my my hatred towards the other guys and just the uh, the tension and the rivalry. I feel like that tension is there. CC definitely helped that this weekend, which I love. We've been calling for one of the veteran guys to be do something along those lines, uh, you know, speak out or, or or do something during the game. And I think that we we felt it during that start, especially after the post game when you hear the comments fly about the bunt and all that stuff. So I feel like there is a tension and it's brewing.
2: When you look at the numbers of the Yankees on the season versus the Red Sox, they've actually dominated the season series. It, they're eleven and eight versus them, but they've outscored them eighty-two to fifty-nine. And when you factor in the fact that Araldis Chapman crapped two wins away, they could have thirteen wins against the Red Sox this year.
3: Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, those uh, those those late game those late game comebacks by the the Red Sox <laughs> against specifically Araldis Chapman were brutal, and they have done well. The, I think the, uh, the 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 series the last series against them in Fenway was probably the worst they've looked, um, besides the one game on on Saturday. But the you know overall they've they've played really well and and that pretty much goes down to the fact that they've actually been able to control the games against Chris Sale, which is not not what you would think. I mean, it's completely unbelievable that they have done what they have done. And not only has the offense you know scratched across enough wins or enough runs yesterday was a, a different story, but the pitching on the Yankees side has been phenomenal against him. I mean, they all have, you know, nutted up against Chris Sale and said, look, they're going with their guy. I'm going to be the Yankees ace today, no matter who was throwing. And they all they all have uh, thrown like an ace pretty much when they go against him.
2: It's great. And we actually have a mailbag question about that later. We're going to get into it. But this was a huge series. We... I think last night's game, Sunday night's game, was the biggest of the season. It was a must win for the Yankees if they were serious about winning the AL East. They moved to three and a half back of the Red Sox, and they have a two-game lead on the Twins in the wild card. They're going to Baltimore. They're playing in a couple hours as we're recording right now. Baltimore's a hot team right now, so don't count Baltimore out. Somehow, we thought they were dead and buried at the, at the trade deadline, but their offense is heating up, so do not count Baltimore out. Yankees still have a lot of work to do. But they don't play Boston for the rest of the year. So I know you said that the Yankees could split this weekend and still be in it for the, for the division. But had they split, they're looking at five and a half back. And I just don't think that would have been feasible. Three and a half back, I think, is, is doable. It's not going to be easy. But also remember, because the Yankees have the season series wrapped up against the Red Sox, if they tie in the AL East, that goes to the Yankees, not the Red Sox.
3: Yeah, that's one of the the, the factors that I, I don't think we've really talked about, but that is important. That's extremely important. That's a that's a that's a big deal. And and I think that's when they when they realize you know they got to win this game. This is this is basically a a, a tiebreaker um, that that just puts that much more pressure on that game. And that's why you got to love man what Severino did on Sunday night because this dude just obviously felt the magnitude of the game and said, "Give me the ball, I'm going to go out and dominate." And that's exactly what happened talking about Baltimore where the hell did they come from again their offense is pretty much doing now what we thought they would do They they didn't you know early in the season in the beginning in the middle of the season when they really hit stumbling blocks um, we all knew their pitching was like eh but we knew that their offense was going to be you know prolific and their their offense is doing it and their pitching now is is, is getting the job done
2: so you mentioned it you love what CC did after that Thursday game before we get to that let's talk about what he actually did on the field and that is dominate the Red Sox once again six innings one earned run he's 4 and0 with a 1.04 era against the Red Sox this season I don't know how that's that's possible you figure he's a he's a veteran lefty at this point he's not throwing that hard you'd think a lineup with guys like Hanley Ramirez and Dustin Pedroya and and Bogarts and all those big right-handed hitters would eat Sabathia up but he's basically just outsmarted the Red Sox he's he's really learned how to pitch, and against the Red Sox, he's always throwing backdoor breaking balls. He just keeps mm-hmm. them off balance, and then they they piss him off on the field, and he's not afraid to call him out after. I know you said you love that. I think I might have a little bit different opinion on it, but whatever it is, it's working for Sabathia.
3: Now, I'm not saying that I think what he, whatever he was bitching about was justified. Like I think that's kind of dumb, but I don't really care what he was saying. The point of the matter to me is that he was getting fired up and he used it as a chip. And you could tell that he was using it because they asked him about it and and asked him if that motivated him even more. And he said, yes, it absolutely did. So – Whatever you see as a slight in game, like, take it as a slight. I could care less what you, th- what you see. Any player on, on my teams, like, I, I want you to identify something that, that makes you very angry. Whether it's completely unjustified, whether it's completely dumb, I don't care. In that game, I want you to bottle that up and, and you know eat their, eat their children. Like, just go out and just destroy them. It doesn't matter. Ooh, it's a little graphic. Yeah, well, that's Mike Tyson. I'm going to eat your children. <laughs> Uh, but
2: what he said is stupid. When you think about it, like the Red Sox are trying to win, just like the Yankees are trying to win. If you can win by bunting on a pitcher who can't field his position, by all means, do that. If I, if the, if it was the Yankees facing a guy like Sabathia, I would want them bunting t- until he falls down and breaks his knee again. That's what I would. That's what I would want.
3: Yeah, no, I I, I agree. I I think that that when you see somebody you've been struggling against, you're trying to get on base. Eduardo Nunez is one of those guys who's who does a million different things with the bat. Uh, you know, putting a bunt down is not not really against his game. I mean, I could see him doing that against anybody. But the um, and and completely on his own, by the way. The uh, the thing that that DD, or that um, CC was talking about was that his comments were basically saying like, I didn't take it as a slight, as as a uh, as, as you know, basically them coming at me saying like it's disrespectful. But he was like, let's go, oh, kind hit of the was. ball. Yeah, but he he made direct comments about that, saying like, "No, I'm seeing it as a you're you're just not you're not trying to he, face me, you're not trying to battle me, I'm trying to battle you, and you're bitching out by bottling."
2: He, he used the word weak. Yeah, he said it was weak, and and I think he was kind of pulling the
3: he was kind of being
2: like the unwritten rules police, which I hate.
3: I don't see. I don't know. I, I think it was a little bit of both, but again, I don't really care. It doesn't matter to me. I, I like the fact that he found something and bottled it up. If it pisses him off in the middle of the game, when you're when your emotions are flying and, you know, you're not thinking clearly, you're not thinking rationally. Usually that's what happens when adrenaline kicks in and you're in uh, a competition, your head definitely gets the best of you. And in that particular instance, it certainly got the best of him because he made a horrible throw. But at the same time, he used that as ammunition for the rest of the game. And that worked too. So good on him.
2: I just don't really like when players bitch like that in the media about little things like bunting in a game because i wish their yankees did that kind of stuff more i i think they should have bunted all over kurt schilling and his fake ketchup sock in the 2004 alcs but they didn't because they they were quote following unwritten rules of the game i don't care about unwritten rules of the game do whatever you got to do to win
3: no i agree I agree. I mean, I think it's uh, it's it's one of those things where you're trying to get on base. And NCC and has been dominant. We just went over the numbers that that he has against Boston this year. Like, obviously, they're not doing well against him. Yeah, he's he in keeps their them off balance. Yeah, there's no doubt. So they're trying to get on base, scratch across. But again, I'll say it for a fucking third time. I love that he did it. I love that he took it, and I love that he used it as ammunition.
2: Do you also love that Greg Bird went deep for the second day in a row, and you're getting a little nervous that he's going to— it's going to come true that he's the MVP of the September?
3: No. I mean, I'm very happy that he went deep. I think it's a huge thing for Greg Bird's confidence, a huge thing for the confidence of the fans and the team that this guy is actually on the right path. Uh, I want him to do well. I think that, one, as an MVP candidate at this point in the season, on the month, it's pretty much over. It's not going to happen. So I just need oh, really? to do well. Yeah. Oh, really? You think so? Huh? Oh, yeah, definitely. You because, what happened, because what happened? Because when Matt Holiday just comes in in two games, he does the same production. I mean, like, look at those forearms. How, how how can you compare the two? Greg Bird is still hunched over on the dug in the dugout, like not talking to people. I don't. He's a weird dude, man. I don't really understand his uh, dynamic in the clubhouse either. There's something going on with him. I don't know if he's got like Aspergers or something, but he's a weird dude. Holidays <laughs> well, just walking in like. You know, making making uh, Aaron Judge hit home runs again, just forearm bashing everybody, hitting two bombs. He's just a man amongst uh, amongst adolescent boys. uh, When you're looking at this, it's ridiculous. Well, when you talk to
2: Rob Reffsnyder, he was talking about how Greg Bird's one of the weirdest guys in the clubhouse.
3: That's right. Yeah, he was talking about how bad his jokes are. His jokes are terrible.
2: Okay, so he's a little bit of an odd duck. He's you know who else was an an odd duck? Yeah. You know who else was an odd duck? John Olerud. Okay. Don't you remember my comparative to John Ulrich?
3: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I don't really know much about... John Olrud had... had uh, he didn't really talk. I, I mean, the media wasn't what it was at that point either, so I don't really know. The dude wore a helmet on first base. If Greg Bird trots out with a helmet, your comparison is perfect. I saw somebody, by the way, comparing Greg Bird's swing to Griffey's swing on Twitter. I don't know if you saw that. They had like I did not. Uh, they had a split screen video of the two. Like it got that serious that they're like dead serious about this. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, what do you what are you seeing? I I don't understand. Griffey was like a spectacle of an athlete, and Greg Bird is a lumbering first baseman that just had bone surgery in his foot that doesn't look anything like it. I think we need to
2: agree as a, a baseball society that you can't compare anybody's swing to Griffey. He is no. the – always will be the king of swing. Yeah, you it can't was, compare anyone. It's pretty. It's just – it was a beautiful, pretty follow-through. The guy – It was pure sex. That's was. what it
3: was. It was.
2: At least Bird's looking healthy. We hadn't seen him look healthy. He was taking weak-ass hacks when he was trying to come back from the DL the first time. He's not doing that anymore. So that's encouraging. They figured out the problem. I'm a little nervous that they waited, um, that the medical staff misdiagnosed it, and they might be doing the same thing with Aaron Judge's shoulder. That just scares me. But right now, Greg Bird is healthy, and that's what I love to see.
3: Yeah, no, it's definitely good. It, it's it's you know it's a, um, he's a different player right now. It lo- he just looks more comfortable, and I think I think you know getting him off on the right foot, no pun intended, but him actually going out there and, and starting hot and um, and hitting the the ball with power and getting on base huge, huge, huge steps for his confidence because he needed that. I mean, he's had a good first stretch. What, he's hitting three, whatever he is. He's a nine RBI, seven for 24 since he's come back, but he's still under 200 on the season. You know what I mean? Like he's got to get that confidence up. He's got to get his confidence up so that he's playing. And I think that's it. You know, he, he pretty much has to throw away what he did early on and to say, this is my season now, um, I'm healthy. And it really does look like that. So it's, it's awesome to see.
2: I do like what Girardi's doing with him Headley and Todd Frazier. He's using them based on matchups, and a lot of times Greg Bird will come off the bench to pinch hit and then go into first base for defensive replacements. So I kind of like how Girardi's managing that that th- that three player for two position situation right now.
3: Yeah, it's I mean it's an abundance of players that are that are good. I mean you know H- Headley's playing out of his mind. Um, Frazier is you know hot one day, cold the next day, but he plays a good uh, third base. Granted, he had a, a couple weird errors. Um, yesterday, but you know, he's a solid third baseman. Every time he makes a throw, it seems like it's in the middle of the chest. And then you have Greg Bird coming back. You can't go out and just play him every day, you just can't do it after the season that he's had, the injuries that he's had. So, I mean, he's the guy that you definitely have to platoon in there and then rotate the other two. So, it's an I think it's a nice balance, and it's good for Girardi to do that. Um, plus, it keeps everybody fresh. I'm, I'm still, I still think that September is going to be a hot, hot uh, month. For this team, and I think offensively we're going to have one of the best offensive uh, months that this team has seen, and that's not that's not taken lightly because they had they came out of the gate unbelievably hot.
2: The biggest surprise right now, though, is Headley, what he's doing since he's moved over to first base. The Yankees tweeted something three thirty eight since uh, switching to first base, and he was ten for twenty five with three home runs on the homestand. He's hitting for power again. Which I was not expecting. I thought even if he did hit for average again, it would just be singles and maybe an occasional double. But he had he's had two home runs this series against the Red Sox from the right-handed side of the plate, which we gave up on him hitting right. handed Yeah.
3: No, I mean he's he's uh, he's resurged. He's a, a resurgence from both sides of the plate. It, for a while, it was it was only on the left side. He had pretty much given up on the right. But you start looking at the numbers um, over the past month and really on the season at this point, and he's. He's doing well from both sides. I think he was uh, on the season. He's at like two sixty five from the right hand side, and that was way higher than I was expecting when I looked that number up. Um, but yeah, he just looks like he's comfortable. And you know, we talked about the the credit that he deserves on on being that team guy. And I think even you have have acknowledged like this. He's definitely taken a couple um, ticks up in your book when he just became that selfless player and said, "I'll do whatever I got to do." He didn't bitch about going to first. He just did it. He worked his butt off. I mean, he's playing a pretty decent first base. It's not gold glove, but it's, you know, it's he's doing the job over there. And he's hitting the ball. So he's he's a very, very important cog to this team right now.
2: You earn respect in my book if you put the team before yourself and you move positions and you don't put up a stink about it. And then he's on top of that, he's hitting. I can't ignore the stats. I'm not, I'm not that much of an asshole where I'm just gonna ignore stats just to keep hating on a guy. I might never like Chase Headley. I might never be a Chase Headley fan. I'm not going out and buying a head jersey, but I at least have to respect what he's doing on the field
3: right now. You know you want a head jersey. Let's let's all be honest. You wanna you want to rock a head jersey?
2: No, no. Maybe maybe if you had 69 on the back, but other than that, no thanks.
3: Hmm? Christmas list.
2: Uh, Sunny Sonny Gray gave up three home runs on Friday. It was the one game the Yankees lost in the series. I don't know what it is about their offense that just shut gets shut down every time Sonny Gray is on the mound. But the Yankees have scored 1, 0, 5, 1, 6, and 1 in starts by Sonny Gray. So in four of his six starts, one runner, one run of support or less.
3: Yeah, it's not good. It's pretty much exactly what he got in Oakland, too. I mean, it's, it seems like it follows the guy. He just he lulls people to sleep, and apparently it takes too long, and then the offense isn't ready to come out. I don't know what the deal is, but uh, they got to start getting this guy some runs because uh, he didn't have his best stuff. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he gave up three home runs, what four earned on the day, um, but the offense did absolutely nothing. He kept him in the game. He's he's been very good since he's come to the Yankees. So I got I really don't have any complaints about Sonny Gray.
2: He's been consistent. Um, he. I I was fi- I figured that if he held the the Red Sox to three or four runs, that that would be enough for the Yankees to score off Doug Pfister. But Pfister has been freaking Cy Young his last three starts. Four earned runs and 23 innings pitch for Doug Pfister. The Red Sox pulled him out of the garbage. How the hell is he pitching this well?
3: Yeah, I don't know. It's He's pretty much doing uh, what Porcello did. <laughs> it's like, these guys are four or five ERA guys. Can they start acting like that, please? Porcello finally is back to that. I mean, he had... He had one fluky, fluky season and somehow got a Cy Young uh, hardware out of it. This guy is coming out, and he was dominant against the Yankees. They couldn't touch him. He was changing speeds. He was locating. He looked confident, and it was really, really pissing me off. It was, it was, uh, it was very frustrating to watch Doug Fister go out there and shut down the Yankees.
2: It was um, so. The only thing that maybe is to note of Sonny Gray since coming to the to the Yankees, excuse me, is that he's allowed five home runs in 37 innings pitched, which is like twice the rate of home runs he was giving up in in Oakland. Do you attribute that just to the ballpark?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, some of it you have to give to the ballpark. I think uh, you know, the, obviously, the ballpark in Oakland is a hell of a lot bigger than Yankee Stadium. Um, I don't know what the splits are as far as his starts away and home and where those home runs came, but. Yeah, the also, the other thing is that, I mean, to me, that's not a a, a crazy amount of home runs, so it's not something I'm really going to over-speculate on, because even five home runs in 37 innings is not a ton, and, and you know, he could have uh, a couple get away, and you have a bad stretch, and for him, if that's a bad stretch, I'll take that all day long. I mean, that's that's something that's uh, that's not terrible. I mean, when we're seeing the balls fly out of Yankee Stadium as much as they are, that if Sonny Gray is and traditionally, I mean, he does put the ball on the ground. He changes speeds and does so right. many things. He keeps keeps the guys off balance. I, we're not looking at a trend here. I think it's just more of it is what it is.
2: Agree. It's not a bad stretch, but it's kind of a bad stretch for him because he's a ground ball pitcher.
3: Yeah, and that's why I think that it's it's more fluky than anything. It's not like the guy is pitching to the stadium. It's not like it's not like his numbers are attributed uh, and, and you know are are, made, are, are based off of. His success, because Oakland Stadium was bigger, I I don't buy that. I think the guy pitches the way he pitches, and he's a ground ball guy, and when he makes mistakes, you know, and occasionally go out, and maybe he just made some more more mistakes in those 37 innings than he had in the past.
2: Well, it's not just uh, Oakland versus Yankee Stadium, because I know he's made starts at Fenway and at Toronto, which are two home run happy ballparks as well.
3: Well, there you go. I mean, that, that also attributes to it. I mean, home runs fly out of both those places.
2: Right. And then he's pitching in the AL West, and you've got not only Oakland, but you've got Seattle, which is a big ballpark, and you've got um, Anaheim, too. So it's just, it's a slightly, it's I think we're just going to see a little bit more home runs from him than we have in his career.
3: And I mean, five five home runs over 37 innings is no, nothing to be ashamed about. It's not a no. terrible stat either.
2: No, it's it's not like Tanaka giving up 23 home runs in the first half of the season.
3: Right, I think he gave up seven in Derek Jeter Day.
2: <laughs> uh, but since Derek Jeter Day, or really since the second half, eight starts since the All-Star break for Tanaka, 52.2 innings pitch, 2.73 ERA, 215 batting average against with six home runs allowed. In the first half, he had a 276 batting average and a tw- and 23 homers allowed. So he's turned back into the 2016 Tanaka if you set the uh, the parameters of what you're looking at as the All-Star break.
3: So Tanaka and Bird are back to spring training form. Is that what we're saying? Because that's what I, it looks like.
2: That's what it looks like.
3: <laughs> look, Tanaka has been very good. We went over his numbers that were surprising. Uh, I think we were both a little bit puzzled when we saw the actual numbers and and based on what we had seen, um, just with the eye test and him pitching. But if you look at the last couple of starts, Tanaka, especially in his last start, looked like Tanaka. I mean, he looks like the guy. That we always thought he would be, uh, we look like he looks like a guy who's in control of the at bats. Whereas before he was kind of a lost puppy dog out there. The dude was hanging his head, looked very puzzled, had no idea why the ball was flying out of the ballpark, didn't know why the ball wasn't going where he thought it was going to be uh, within the strike zone, and now he just looks like a different guy. I mean, he looks like Tanaka. I don't know what the difference is. You know, if there was fatigue in that arm after spring training and it caught up to him and then it came back, I don't know. Um, but he's, at the end of the day, I don't care because right now, when we need him the most in this September stretch, he's pitching very well. And uh, and watch out because the Yankees, you know, I said this before, you got Sonny Gray, Severino and Tanaka at the top of a rotation. That is freaking dominant. That is great stuff. And CeCe, okay.
2: watch out CeCe. Two questions as it regards to Tanaka. The first one, if he pitches like this through the month of September, does he opt out?
3: Yeah, Absolutely, <laughs> he does. And okay, follow up
2: question: Do the Yankees yeah. resign him if he does?
3: I, I it's such a tough, it's such a tough situation. I think they'll try. I don't think they'll. I, I don't think they will um, overspend. I think they will have a, a number going into it that they're comfortable with, and they'll offer that number, but they won't get into a bidding war. Well, we talked to Brian
2: Hoke and Wally Matthews, and they both were pretty confident that if Tanaka opts out, the Yankees
3: will not re-sign him. And I, I don't think that's um, I don't think that the Yankees are just going to let him walk, especially if he comes back and throws the way he is throwing in the second half. I mean, you, you're look when we're looking at the grand scheme of things, he had a bad first half, and that's it pretty much. I mean, the guy has pitched very well since being on the Yankees. He's had one one half of baseball that's been pretty bad, and um, uh, abysmal actually. Not pretty bad. It was terrible. But when you're looking at the grand scheme of things, he's been very very good. And if he can prove that you know there's nothing going on and something there were mechanical or head issues I don't know what the hell it was and he's corrected those, the Yankees will not just sit back and let him walk. They'll offer him a deal. But again, I think it's going to be on their terms.
2: Second question for, from uh, regarding Tanaka: If he pitches like this for the month of September, does Girardi think about starting him in a one-game wild card uh, game versus Severino?
3: No. I think Severino has completely earned the number one spot, and if there is a wild card game, it's Severino. Severino gets the ball. What if the this Yankees... This is like 18 follow-ups now. What
2: if the Yankees need... Uh, this is like when you play Would You Rather in college, and you just keep adding on to, to make the person flip their answer. What if the Yankees need Severino to get into a one-game wild card spot or to clinch home field in a one-game wild card spot, or for whatever reason Severino has just pitched and he's not available, do they go Tanaka or do they go Sunny Gray?
3: Um, I think it depends on the matchup. It depends on where the game is, what time the game is, how many days rest it is. Uh, but I think that they will go Tanaka over Sonny Gray. If, if Tanaka continues this uh, th- this trend and pitches really well for September, I think Tanaka definitely will get the edge over Sonny Gray. I think questions? it's actually more of a question. I, I honestly believe it would be more of a question of um, if, if CeCe's still pitching that well and how the days are lining up. I think Joe would – 100% feel confident in throwing CC in, in a one-game one uh, play-in, play-off, I think he would totally have the confidence in doing that.
2: So uh, I think it was Jessica Mendoza made that point on the ESPN broadcast last night that Severino's the number one guy, but Girardi has options behind Severino, which other teams like the Twins, the Angels, the Orioles, all those
3: teams fighting for the wild card, they don't have options. Well, and that's the thing about this wild card setup now. it's going to come down to that last week. And a lot of the, the final games are going to come down to who's available and who's not available because you can't really line up your guys for a one game wild card. And you can't line up your guys to pitch into pitch, pitch at a game in a game that's going to set you up for that one game wild card. Like there are so many game 7s within that last week that are possible the, the more options you have, obviously you have better, you have more of an advantage than the other team. So, so yeah, you, you just, there's less planning in that last week. And the fact that Girardi has these options, which is crazy to think about, you know, where we were a month ago with our starting rotation. Now we're talking about that. He's got four very good options to throw in a one game um, playoff or play in game is, uh, is pretty insane, but he does have those options. And I do believe. That you know, I don't care how old CC is or whatever. You throw all that away when you start looking at big game situations, and uh, and guys who will go in there and and treat them as such, and and you know you have the confidence that they will keep you in a game or at least um, get you through five six innings. CC's on the top of that list as well.
2: We had this on Twitter yesterday, and I think we've talked about this in in an episode maybe a month or two ago about Sabathia, what he's gonna uh, do after the season because he's a free agent. I don't think he wants to play for any other team than the Yankees, so I think it's kind of in both of their best interests to bring him back on like a one-year deal, maybe with some incentives, if he wants to pitch next year.
3: Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's the move. I mean, I think that um, you know CC has earned that this year. I think he's earned and he's proved that he can pitch. He can he can change. Uh, he has changed his style he has has done very well with with the change I mean you're seeing a very different picture whereas he's you know he's nibbling a lot more obviously he doesn't have the velocity. he can still ramp it up occasionally but not to where he used to be he walks a lot more guys gets in more trouble but he seems to be able to get out of that trouble more oftentimes than not so I think he's definitely earned that and when you're looking at you know a, a, f- a number five starter type guy uh, and that's that's who you'd be bringing in if you didn't sign him then absolutely I think that that CC um, is, is that type of guy, you know? The thing that comes along with that is is knowing that he's not going to be able to make every start, and that you're going to have to pair him with, you know, a uh, the the Scranton Shuttle, because there's going to be guys coming in because his knee his knee will be a problem at some point, and it could be a detrimental. Uh, problem at some point and and put him on the shelf forever you just don't know so you have to have backup options
2: that's why you sign him to the andy pettit one year 14 or 15 million dollar contract and if that's the case then fine he doesn't make a few starts or he has to go on the dl for for three weeks because of his knee you can at least deal with that but when you're paying him 25 million like they are now that's a little bit harder to swallow
3: yeah it's the same deal that they did with uh uh, with uh kuroda i mean kuroda came back on this one i forgot about that guy yeah, he was great, though. I mean, Corona I was a great, great pitcher for the Yankees. And he was never dominant, but he was never bad either. I mean, the guy was always consistent. And um, they would bring him back on these one-year deals because he didn't know if he was going to go back to Japan or not. He wanted to go home. Uh, I think it's a similar situation where where CC wants to pitch in New York. He's not going to go somewhere else and and do you know, uproot his family again and, and do that whole thing. He's obviously very comfortable in New York. He's doing media things now, too. So uh, I think it makes sense for everybody involved that to, to bring him back on a one-year deal
2: did you have to hose yourself off after Matt Holliday hit that massive three-run homer off Pomeranz
3: yes I was I was I was very <laughs> excited to say the least I was very excited to see Six him to back
2: midnight in the Reinen household
3: <laughs> I was very excited to see him back and healthy I mean he looks like he's got his strength back he looks like he has got that confidence back uh, the dude is, uh, he's, a ga- he's a game changer in this lineup. I mean, he's a significant right-handed power bat that helps out the construction of the lineup um, when, you're, when you're facing the Yankees, and uh, to see that that power is there, and my God, when that man gets into a ball, he hits the ball a long way.
2: I think, honestly, I think he's just pissed he was not there for the Detroit brawl.
3: That's, I mean, I'm pissed that he wasn't there for the Detroit brawl. I, he would have been a bouncer just throwing bodies off. He literally would have just seen bodies flying.
2: Uh, The Sunday game, as we already mentioned, biggest game of the season, Severino showed up, um, which is exactly why he's the number one pitcher. He took the Red Sox
3: bats and shoved them right up their ass. He was so dominant that the dude was out of his – he was on a different level than I've ever seen um, Severino. I mean, he was at another level in the sense that he wasn't even getting fired up after he did something totally dominant, like throw a 99-mile-an-hour fastball on the black or drop a, a slider to Dustin Pedroia for a second time. Like he was just he knew that it was gonna come. Like the amount of confidence that he would that he had walking off the mound after he just did something unbelievably phenomenal was so awesome to see. It's like he's turned the corner knowing that he's the guy, knowing that he has that stuff, and that nobody can touch him when he's on. And that that is what you need in a guy to be your number one ace for the long term. And when you have stuff like his. Like, look out, there are some special outings that we're going to be seeing from this guy because you add the confidence to that repertoire, dominance, absolute dominance, and and it looks like he can sustain it.
2: You're totally right. He... Freaking pin a ball ninety nine miles an hour on the black. He wouldn't even smile. He'd just turn around, look pissed off, laser focused like yeah. he's an assassin. Like give me the ball back, give me the fucking ball back. I'm about yep. to go blow this next guy away. And that's what he was like for the six innings. He would have gone longer, except the Yankees piled on the runs in that in that uh, bottom of the sixth inning. He definitely would have came out for the seventh if they needed him.
3: Yeah, I think he only had eighty nine pitchers or eighty seven pitches or something like that. It, he wasn't he wasn't in trouble with pitch count. It was it was definitely game contingent and how the flow is going of uh you know with the amount of runs but yeah like you said man it just and that's what we've been waiting for i feel like we've been we've seen very good stuff from him obviously this year i mean it's been night and day compared to what he was last year um you know especially as a starter i mean we saw that dominance as a, as a reliever but this guy is putting it all together and you know you can't you can't say enough about confidence because when you do have that confidence behind your ability it's just that next level and He believes it. He definitely believes it. He's definitely listening. He's drinking his own Kool Aid, and uh, you know when it comes down to playoff baseball, when it comes down to big games, I think the control of that emotion, like he had last night, is so very important. And he shows that he can do it, and that's uh, that's huge for this team.
2: So this is why I think this is where I think the number one pitcher versus an ace distinction in my mind comes in because what we saw from Severino was ace like. He literally did not let the Red Sox put bat on ball. That is something that only pitchers like Severino can do. Tanaka can't do that. Sonny Gray can't do that. CeCe Sabathia can't do that anymore. Chris Sale can do that. Those uh, Kluber can do it. Where it doesn't matter what you are doing, I'm not going to let you even touch the ball. That is what an ace can do.
3: There are very few guys who can do that in the major leagues. There are very few guys that can do that. And I think and I I I still think you don't give enough credit to Tanaka when, when he's on his game because when he's on his game and the amount it's just he's a different style. That's uh, you have a a thing in your head where you need to see that 99 mile overpowering fastball. And I know just
2: like you need to see holidays forearms. I need to see that radar (laughs) gun popping.
3: Yeah, I get that. And that's and that's fine. That's your thing. That's your that's your ace uh, criteria. (laughs) You have a checklist and that's on it. And Tanaka will never get that checklist because he can't throw 100 miles an hour and look that dominant. But he could dominate in very different ways. He's got that many different types of pitches. And when he's going, the splitter is unhittable. It's unhittable because you can't see it coming, and when you can't see that splitter coming, and he's throwing ninety four, ninety five, and then the splitter drops off the face of the planet at the very last second. That too is dominant, but in a different way, in a more of a uh, you know a a pitcher El Duque way. It's harder. It's It's harder. It's much harder. It's not. It's not. It's not God given natural ability of a of a rubber arm. And um, now Severino, I'm not not to discredit that. It's it's just his arm because he's definitely learned to pitch as well. Um, but he's bottled it all up, and you're right. He's that dominant guy. But when Tanaka is on, he also is that unhittable dominant guy because he's got, he has got—he baffles the brains of opposing batters, whereas Severino, they're just like, I can't hit you because your stuff is that good. Tanaka's right. just like, you don't know what the hell's coming, and it's that good.
2: Uh, Severino was on the mound last night, and even when it was a close game, I was never nervous that like the Red Sox were just going to take him deep. Whereas when Tanaka's on the mound, at any point you could just get have him taken deep and then boom it's a different ball game
3: yeah there is a different well there's also the, the the mindset in the back of your head too of what he did in the first half of the year and he does give up home runs so yeah' I'm scarred you're scarred a little bit but look focus on what he is now focus on that this guy is'm trying a I gave very him very very good pitcher right now probably one of the best in the al and when you're adding Sonny gray who has the best numbers in the AL, if you're looking from the second half of the year, and then a dominant guy like Severino, that's three guys. You look at uh, and then CC Sabathia, what he's done against the Red Sox and and other frontier, uh, like high level teams. He's he's a dominant, a uh, guy who just who just games up when when the when the situation calls for it. Like I have a lot of confidence in this pitching staff right now, and I can't believe I'm saying that.
2: Right. It's a, what you said about Tanaka's splitter dropping off, off the face of the earth is a good segue into talk about Gary Sanchez. He had a rough week behind the plate. Four separate pitches that got past him allowed runs to score this week. Two against Cleveland, two against the Red Sox. That's four runs handed to the other team. The one on Sunday night was completely egregious. It was a low fastball that he tried to smother down with his glove. He had no shot at it. Everybody on Twitter... Even the Gary Sanchez apologists agreed that was atrocious. The one on Saturday, though, against Tanaka, it was a wild pitch. However, it was still in the middle of the plate. It could have been blocked. People were saying that was an unblockable pitch. I don't agree at all that that was an unblockable pitch. A good defensive catcher blocks that ball. I
3: have have a perfect example for this. And First of all, it's... It really annoys me when the, when the Gary Sanchez defensive apologists are coming out and be like, okay, well, well, that one should have been blocked at this point. Okay, open your eyes because this has been happening all the time. You just choose not to see it. Now That one you couldn't, you couldn't miss. It was impossible to miss, and you look dumb if you say it was a, it was, it was, it was a bad pitch. What Todd Frazier did, and he got a – Todd Frazier did – I'm going to completely go off the face of the planet on this one too. Todd Frazier had two errors in – I forget what inning it was on Sunday. One of those balls was smoked, I think, by it was, Devers.
2: It was the sixth It was the sixth inning, the same inning that Sanchez allowed the run to score.
3: Okay. So I think it was Devers who smoked the ball. It was a smoked ball down third base. And all Todd Frazier did was play catcher, got his glove down, and squared up on the ball and deadened the ball in front of you. There's a big difference between blocking a ball and deadening a ball so that it actually lands in front of you and you can make a play on it. What Gary Sanchez does is he will get in front of a ball occasionally. When, when, he, when the ball's in the ground, he will get it in front of it, but he will not square up. People think that that is squaring up by getting down and blocking and hitting his chest protector. No, that is not his task. His task is to deaden the ball, bury the ball in front of him so that he has a play, so that he can get eyes on that ball. If he is getting down and the ball is spinning left or right, that is not what the catcher's job is to do. The catcher's job is to anticipate that spin, square up the ball, square up the spin, and deaden the ball. Exactly what Frazier did. Uh, Aaron, he made an errant throw, but that's exactly what he did. It was textbook. It was textbook third base. Third base catcher, a lot of similarities in the way that they handle a ball in the dirt like that. Now, Gary Sanchez, everybody's like, oh, he blocked however many balls before that. Fine great, I'm glad he blocked the ball. It's his freaking job. I cannot go and say that this is not a significant thing because I'm I'm, I'm done talking about it at this point. I'm This is my last thing I'm going to say on, on Gary Sanchez blocking the ball. My, I'm pretty sure my thoughts are well out there.
2: Oh, you're giving it the Forrest Gump. That's all I had to say about that.
3: Yeah, because it's it's there's nothing more to say. It, it is what it is. He's not going to correct it in this. It's not going to be a thing that he can correct in season. I'm sorry. It's not. We're going to continue to see this. And I'm not just going to continue to bitch about it because it's going to happen quite often. But... Mark my damn words, when we start getting into games that are highly contested, they're going to be low-scoring games. There are going to be runners on base. What we saw against the Boston Red Sox was embarrassing on what they were doing with uh, with Gary Sanchez behind the plate. They were anticipating pass balls. You don't anticipate a pass ball against a catcher. That is not something that happens in the big leagues. Literally, uh, Nunez on third base and whoever was on second base, they were getting sec- bigger secondary leads because they knew that ball was going to get behind him at some point. And it doesn't even need to get that far away from him at this point because if you're anticipating the ball getting away, you're on your toes ready to score. And they're going to score. These close games are going to be a very, very big problem late in the ball game with Gary Sanchez behind the plate. It's going to happen. The ball's going to get behind him because you can't correct what he is doing right now in the middle of a season. You just can't do it. You can't make long-term corrections. He can do it in the offseason. I believe that he can change that. Not now. And it's going to be a problem. Um, So... Is he a prolific offensive player? Absolutely. Is he probably the best offensive catcher? Probably. The guy does amazing things offense. I'm not ever going to take away what he can do on the offense. But as a catcher, if you're going to play that position, you have to be able to block the ball. You have to be able to give your your pitcher confidence that they can bury a breaking ball in the dirt to get a guy, to get a third strike, and that you're going to be able to throw that guy out of first base. And that ball is not going to be able to get by you and score a run. You've got to have that confidence, and it's a problem if not.
2: Right. I think people are confused. They think we're saying Sanchez is a bad player, which is absolutely not what we're saying. But with the level of incompetence of him blocking balls, it's we can't ignore that problem. If it was three or four pass balls over the course of a season, you can overlook that because of the offense and throwing and all the other stuff he does. But when it's this bad, he's the worst in the league. Is it too much to ask for him to go from worst in the league to just maybe 15th in the league, middle of the pack? That would be adequate. That would be fine. And he but missed worst a month of the baseball. Is unacceptable.
3: And he missed a month of baseball. There's there's right. there's a significant chunk of, of of the season missing because he wasn't playing, and he's still leading in pass balls. If you if if I, I I don't really understand how people are coming at me like. Well, stop looking at that. You have to look at that. If you're not looking at that, you're blind. It you're runs. burying your head, and you're you're ignoring a significant problem. And if you think that we're just here for the regular season and to, to get to the playoffs, and that's okay, and that you can just put up gaudy numbers in the, in the um, season and then not play your position when it comes down to close games— then you're not looking at a, a team that you have championship aspirations because there are going to be all close games. The playoffs are all close games. There are not very many blowouts in the playoffs. It just doesn't happen. So when you have close games and highly contested games at the end of uh, at later in the game and you have balls flying by your catcher, you're going to lose those games. It, there's no doubt about it. It doesn't matter what you do. You're going to lose those games. I saw
2: four runs score from third base from pass balls on Gary Sanchez this week. Four. That's a lot of runs. That's a lot of runs to give away, especially when you're trying to win all the games you can. And a lot of these games are close scoring, and the offense doesn't always produce with runners in scoring position. Every run is critical. And like you said, if we want to win in the playoffs, guess what? There are going to be a lot of one-run games. We can't be just handing
3: them runs from third base on pass balls. And you know, the other thing is, is that these guys are going to get to third base a lot easier because they're also anticipating uh, balls in the dirt or getting away from the catcher from the other bases. They're going to be getting bases a lot easier. They're going to be, especially if you're late in a game and you're against a closer who doesn't, who our closers don't hold our guys on very well, in case you haven't noticed. So you add that to the fact that they're anticipating a ball getting in the dirt. These guys are going to be running on them all the time. And I don't care how strong your arm is if these guys are getting huge secondary leads or big jumps off of your guy and they're have these anticipation of the balls being in the dirt you just can't contain the runners it's just not feasible it's going to be a significant problem it's got to be fixed and unfortunately it's just not going to happen this year so you know i just i just hope that he can uh, he can game up and 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 get the job done but i have i don't have a lot of confidence in his I just uh, hope, defensive ability
2: i just hope it doesn't bite them in a huge game that's my biggest fear: is that it, it yeah. they lose a crucial game to either make it to the playoffs or a wild card or a playoff game because a Gary Sanchez pass ball happens. So
3: I don't want to have to be the I told you so. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> I don't want that situation to come as up. As much as I enjoy it that, will break my freaking heart if that happens because it's just it's not it's it's a horrible way to lose. It's a horrible way to give up runs because at this level it just shouldn't be happening. That's the problem. That's the biggest problem. It's not like it's a huge deficiency in a game, uh, someone's game because it's like. You know, he can't hit the outside pitch or, you know, even frame rate. Like, okay, no, this is about a ball being kept in front of you. That's a huge problem.
2: Right. If you guys want to go to the stadium and watch Gary Sanchez try and block balls, you want to go watch Severino throw 99 on the black, the easiest way to do that is to get your tickets with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest and easiest way to get tickets to live events. They have a seamless mobile experience where you can buy and sell tickets with just two taps. Um, I don't know what could be easier than two taps and obviously everyone's on their mobile device anyway. So, so download the SeatGeek app. It helps you find the best seats at the best price and they're fully guaranteed. So you don't have to worry about getting fraudulent tickets. Um, There's nothing better than seeing your favorite team live and in person with SeatGeek can get you closer to the action at a great value. I've used the app on my phone before and it's by far the easiest way to shop for tickets. They grade every ticket based on value. They color code them. So you know what you're getting. Um, if it's an upper deck seat versus a lower level seat, what the value is on that. Sometimes you can get a seat right up close for a great price. Plus, all the purchases are fully guaranteed, so you can shop with confidence. Our listeners right now can get 20 bucks off their first SeatGeek purchase by downloading the app and entering the promo code BRONX. 20 bucks that's huge, especially with tickets. Ticket prices going up as the Yankees get closer to the playoffs. 20 bucks off by downloading the SeatGeek app and using the promo code BRONX. Also, guys, before we get into mailbags, I want to remind you to rate and review the podcast in iTunes. We're up over 400 reviews. It's, er, it's awesome to see. Please go. If you have not done it yet, pause the podcast right now. Go give it a five-star rating and review. We appreciate it, and it helps us create better shows. You ready to get into mailbags, Scott?
3: Yeah, we have some good ones. Let's get into them. Okay, the
2: first one, actually, it's a two parter from Zach Waters. He says, Is it weird that I don't necessarily get scared when the Yankees are facing Sale? It's the same feeling I remember from when Pedro was on the Red Sox. Even if they even if they might not win the game, it feels like the team will get up for the game and at least be
3: in a position to win come the ninth inning. I love it. You know, the fact that this this team is is gaming up against Chris Sale. You know, we talked about the Severino factor and the confidence and how this guy is is going out there and and you know the the level of confidence behind the talent it just puts him over the edge now i'm not saying that chris sale is is mentally weak i'm not saying that i'm not saying that a stable a a stable person would go and cut up their uniform with scissors either but that being said if you are going against the new york yankees you have not beaten them. Their pitchers have matched you every single start you're going out there. There's going to be something in the back of your head saying, what gives? Why is this team? Why can't I get over the hump with this team? What's going on? And that just slight little bit, tiny tinge of lack of confidence can can definitely eat at you. And I think that's what we saw yesterday. I think the Yankees had a huge, unbelievable approach to this guy. Their game plan was phenomenal credit to Alan Cochran, the duo, the dynamic duo of Alan Cochran and Marcus Timms. I'm going to give them all the credit in the world for it. There was a game plan. Obviously, they went up, they worked the count, they got him into a high-pitch count, and uh, and he made mistakes. Back-to-back home runs, I think, for the first time ever. Unbelievable. But the pitchers against him, unbelievable. And Zach, I, I agree, there's a weird level of confidence going up against him.
2: It was the fifth time the Yankees have faced sale this season. If you don't think that helped them last night in their approach, you're kidding yourself. Because they had better swings, more confident swings. They were taking some of those sliders that were close. They were spitting on them. They made him throw 100 pitches through, through uh, four and change innings. That's huge. That's exactly how you beat a pitcher of Chris Sale's, uh, Chris Sale's ability. You're not going to hit... You're not going to score seven runs off of him in five innings. It's just not going to happen. But you can knock him out by driving his pitch count out. They had good swings on him. They hit the ball hard. So the fifth time, and now the next time will be the sixth time, they'll have an even better approach.
3: Yeah, I think that's that's one thing that, that gets overlooked when you look at the uh, in-division rivalries of um, you know how many games they play against each other. When you're playing someone in your division 19 times or however many times it is, the the level of of confidence going up against the guy because you have seen it. There's now you're not looking at tape, you're not going off of what you saw the year before or you know a start months ago. Like they just faced this guy a couple weeks ago. It's it's all it's all relatively new. Everybody there has you know had an at bat against him. When you when you can put those at bats together and, and kind of you know see these things in person, it definitely gives you a level of confidence. So I love it. I mean, they have um, the 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 nice thing about the Yankees too is that. With the amount of bodies that they have are that are healthy right now, um, and right-handed power and right-handed uh, bats, which they didn't have not had in the past, it's a different lineup. So Chris Hale has his work against him when he's going up against the Yankees lineup because they can throw right-handed bats against him, and they can also throw uh, guys like Didi who are left-handed bats. It doesn't really matter who's throwing if it's a lefty righty. Like these guys can can hit left-handed pitching. So. Um, I think the lineup for the Yankees also plays into the way that that sales uh, his strengths as well, so it's good stuff. Yeah,
2: and I would definitely say uh, four innings and five starts from Yankee starters is definitely getting up for Chris Sale starts.
3: Oh, there's no doubt. There's 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 That's absolutely insane. no doubt. F-
2: f- four runs and five starts. So, uh, his second question was how important is Matt Holliday to Judge's production? And I know you think it's very important,
3: vital, vitally important. Look, I, there's there's a it's obvious. Whenever Holiday is in the dugout, Judge is on his hip. It's every single time. I mean, they're talking about it in the post-game. This th- he obviously looks up to him. He's a he's a mentor. He talks about he talks to um Holiday throughout the game about the pitcher, uh about the approach. He definitely talks to him about off the field stuff. Like, I think there's a a significant bond there. And when you have a comfort level with a guy like that, and you can really just take what little nuggets that he's giving you. And, you know, another similar style guy in the sense of big body, big right-handed power. Like they're very similar in, in players. Um, I think it's huge. I think it's huge for a confidence because I think that's one of the things that we're seeing with judge, you know, when you have such a bad stretch like this, your confidence, I mean, we keep talking about confidence, but it's so important in the game, uh, in the game of baseball, because if you are not there, you will get mowed over time and time again. I think that's what we're seeing. So if there's any infusion of confidence and a a little bit of ability by holiday for judge, then, you know, I think it's a huge deal. And we saw a ball fly out of the ballpark coincidence. I think not,
2: but, but Holiday was on the bench maybe he wasn't playing the whole time in July and August but he was in the dugout with Judge and Judge was still struggling
3: yeah i just think it's a different level when you're playing i think when Holiday's going up there for at bats and seeing the guy i think you can give a different level of insight because you're now facing the same guy i think there's just a, a you know Holiday when you're not playing when you're not playing on a team as well i don't know you, you i feel like there's a different you're almost like a coach at that point whereas you're you're not a player coach where you're out there doing it, seeing the guy as well. I just think there's different conversations that happen.
2: Yeah, and Judge did hit that massive home run, and the stadium erupted once he hit that home run on Sunday night, 469 feet. Um, it, it's at the very least a confidence booster. Maybe it wasn't the most important home run to the game because the Yankees had just cleared the bases on a Starling Castro double, but Judge maybe can get some confidence back. He got on top of a high fastball, which was great to see. We're just looking for confidence right now from Judge.
3: Yeah, because you have that confidence and the rest of the stuff will take care of itself. Mechanical, you know, talking about as a freaking switch. Yeah, be healthy, have confidence. I, uh, I'm, I have confidence that he will be back. Again, I'm calling for a huge September offensively. And Aaron Judge is going to be at the uh, the the dead center of that. I think we're going to finally see Gerrit Sanchez and Aaron Judge have one hot month together. And it's going to be... Amazing to watch. It's going to be must-see TV in the Bronx, must-go-to-the-game. It's The stadium's going to be electric. They're going to be doing the strobe lights constantly because there's a, a, a ton of power on this team right now.
2: Great. I mean, this podcast has never jinxed anything, so that's good.
3: No, you jinx things. This podcast doesn't jinx anything. I don't jinx things. You jinx things. Don't do that.
2: <laughs> What's the next mailbag?
3: The next one is from Brent. He says, with the, uh, with the winner of the East most likely facing the Indians, would you rather see the Yankees... Make it as a wild card and face the Astros instead with how good the Indians have been playing. No wild card team really seems to be a threat uh, to beat the New York Yankees. Wouldn't that be a more plausible and better option?
2: Well, first of all, the Indians need to overtake the Astros. Well, it looks like they may do that, I think they're three games back of the Astros right now. Um, that's not a given. The Astros did just get better. They added Verlander. So it's not a given that the Indians will have the number one seed.
3: No, it's definitely not a given. But the Indians are definitely playing the best baseball. See, they're you know, a better they,
2: team. They're a better team than the Astros.
3: They are a better team, and there's something to be said about playing baseball. If you if they could sustain a hot month, then I, I think they're probably the uh, the favorites in the East uh, or in the AL. Because if you're going into the playoffs playing hot, like that's that's one of the biggest. You see it every year. Whoever's the hottest team going into the playoffs usually makes the most noise. It happens all the time. If the Indians can sustain this, then they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. Now, I I could argue, like I did with the Red Sox, that they got hot a little too early, and that you're going to see a a lull at some point, and maybe that lull will happen towards the end of the season. It's possible. It's hard to sustain an entire month like that, Um, but well, to your to your point
2: though, uh, if the Indians make the number one seed, that means they're hot. But if the Yankees win the division, that means they're hot too.
3: No, it's it's true, but the Indians have also been. uh, They've also been hot for the last two weeks. I mean, they've been, they've been putting Definitely. it together. What if 11, they won? Like, 11 in a row. <laughs> yeah, so that's two weeks of baseball that they've already been smoking hot. Like That's going to come down to earth at some point. The Yankees have not done that. I think no. the Yankees can start putting together this, this run in September. That being said, I'm not, I'm not asking for an opponent. I'm not asking for a wild card spot. I, if I could get a, a, a series, I want that all day long, yep. every day. Give it to me. I don't care who the opponent is because I'm not going to, one, ask for an opponent because that's dangerous and two, I mean, you're, you're given a series rather than a one-game playoff, play-in, whatever the hell you want to call it, that's a no-brainer.
2: Yeah, it, I don't care the fact that you're playing a weaker opponent in a wild-card game. I think the, we will be confident with if Severino's on the mound, or even if it's Tanaka or uh, Sonny Gray on the mound in a wild-card game, but I still don't want to have to deal with a one-game-anything-can-happen-loser-goes-home matchup. That is not what I want to deal with.
3: No, I want to get into a series. I want to actually feel what the playoffs are like. These these one game, while they're fun at the end of the year, they're great for baseball, I think they're not fun for the team that gets knocked out. They're just not. It doesn't feel like you made the playoffs. The people the next year are like, oh, they made the playoffs. No, they didn't make the playoffs. They made a freaking a play-in game. It's like uh, It's like the... The, the field of 64 and then there's like one more team that's trying to play in however they're doing it now with college basketball but it's, the
2: Indians are going to be a damn tough matchup for whoever yeah. they play because Kluber can match up with any pitcher and then once Andrew Miller is healthy again they've got Cody Allen Andrew Miller a good solid bullpen around those two dominant forces plus a really strong lineup so they're a damn tough team
3: they're a damn tough team but again man I, I can't keep talking about how this lineup and how this rotation and how this bullpen of the New York Yankees lines up for a series. Because they are probably, I'd say, honestly, I'd go out and say that they're deeper than all of these teams. As far as lineup, uh, bullpen, and rotation, you combine the team itself and look at you know what they have with September call-ups, everybody who's coming back healthy, they're an extremely deep team and they could throw a lot at you, no matter if you're uh, throwing a left-handed pitcher, a right-handed pitcher, if you're trying to win a close game with this bullpen if you need to out hit somebody like the Yankees can do all of the above, they they have the construction to do a lot of these things. Now, if they're doing it or if they're playing at that point, that's a different story, but they do have the makeup to compete with anybody.
2: Uh, the next one is from Lee Jones and he says, seeing Austin Jackson in the recent Indian series got me wondering out of the prospects that have left the club during Girardi's tenure. Who do you feel is the biggest mistake? And I've I've named a few that I thought. I went through the history, and there's not a ton of prospects that Cashman has given up that have really materialized into superstars or anything like that. Uh, the one that Lee Jones is talking about is the uh, December 2009 trade that sent Phil Coke, Austin Jackson, and Ian Kennedy to the Tigers, and the Yankees got back Curtis Granderson. I still think that was a solid trade for everyone. I think Austin Jackson had... Um, sort of he had he, he hit his peak in Detroit and then he's kind of been an average player since then so I'm not like super upset about losing Austin Jackson another no. one that another one that looks bad is uh trading Mark Melanson for somebody named Jimmy Paredes to the uh to the Houston Astros for Lance oh excuse me and Jimmy Paredes to the Astros for Lance Berkman do you remember when Teixeira went down and they needed an emergency first baseman
3: yeah the uh Lance Berkman was was uh I was excited actually when they did that because I was excited to see Lance Berkman play for the Yankees. He was a, he was a good hitter in his day. Again, I, I that one is not. I'm not. I'm not circling that one though.
2: Right. How about Eduardo Nunez to the Twins for Miguel Silberan?
3: Eh, I mean, Nunez was. Uh, he's a good offensive player. He's terrible defensively. It's. Uh, it's just one of those things. They really didn't have a, a spot for him. He wasn't going to be the next shortstop. That's what they thought he was going to be originally. And it just wasn't that he couldn't do it with his glove. He can hit. He's a fun player to watch, but you know, you can't, you can't keep a guy on your team like that forever. You just can't do it. It's not sustainable.
2: But uh, those are the, really the only ones that stuck, that uh, stood out to me, which is saying something for Cashman. Maybe it's also saying they didn't have a lot of good prospects to trade. Um, I think one to monitor, as we've already discussed this season, is the Sonny Gray trade where Dustin Fowler, Caprellian, and Jorge Mateo. Like, one or all three of those guys could be big time players.
3: Yeah, that's there's definitely a lot of potential for those guys. Um any of these other ones that we were talking about. Austin Jackson, eh I could care less about Austin Jackson. I could care less about Ian Kennedy. Mark Belanton. honestly I still could care less. It's a bullpen arm. They they're I feel like uh we get a new guy every year that that comes out and does well. So these are these are guys that you could give up. It Cashman again, I think has has been probably one of the best GMs in in baseball. Uh him and uh and homeboy in Chicago. Do you think he would best.
2: do any of those trades over?
3: Yeah, I think the risk reward was was something that they would absolutely do. I think I think that's when you look no, I'm at saying all would he players, would
2: he take would he do a take back
3: No, no. I think Lance Berkman was uh, was effective when he came over for a short stint. They were looking for a guy to play uh, first base at DH. Nunez again, Nunez just didn't have a, a spot on the team. Right. Austin Jackson, no. We have like. Two thousand nine, Austin Jackson. He was not a great player. He still isn't a good, great player. He's a he's a pretty boring player, to tell you the truth. Ian Kennedy never panned out. Phil Coke is whatever. And Granderson was a, a guy that was good for the Yankees. So no, I think that I think that he sticks by those trades.
2: Once again, the the trade history for Brian Cashman looks pretty good.
3: Yeah, the dude is good. He can trade. There's no doubt about it. He can identify talent. He can identify situations, and he can exploit uh, other GMs like your boy Billy Bean.
2: Uh before we get to the last mailbag question, I want to uh, remind you guys to send mailbag questions to bronxpinstripes.com slash podcast. You can tweet us at Yankees Podcast. My handle on Twitter is at Andrew underscore Rotondi. Scott's is at Scott Ryanin. You can also call the voicemail line, six four six four eight zero zero three four two. We will end the show with voicemails. But before we do that, Scott, what is the final mailbag question?
3: final one is from Kyle Roberts. He says, I know it, I know that it is a little early to start talking about the offseason, but what do you think about this Otani guy? Is he more valuable as a bat or a pitcher? Thank you, go Yanks. And he's obviously talking about, uh, the reason Otani is in the news is because Cashman went over to Japan to see him pitch.
2: Yes, along with 12 other GMs and scouts from Major League Baseball teams. It's 12 teams, actually 13 total, I think, were represented in Japan.
3: Yeah, and it's interesting because Cashman, one they were trying to uh, a lot of the media was trying to get some answers out of him. He wasn't giving it. He wasn't. Uh, he was there to to see uh, this guy pitch to see what they're working with, and it's it's definitely a situation to monitor because I I think that um, he's gonna he's gonna be a significant part of the uh, the offseason if he is the, a guy who's coming over if it's if if that's if the Yankees are rumored into actually going and posting. Um, or bidding for him. I think there's going to be a lot of talk about him. And then, yeah, there's going to be a debate about this guy because he can hit and he can pitch. I don't think he's going to do both when he comes to the majors.
2: Right. That's why I'm a little um, upset because they call him the Japanese Babe Ruth because he's one of the best pitchers and one of the best hitters in the Japanese league. But there's not going to be a major league team who's going to take that risk and do both. Maybe a National League team signs him to pitch and he can hit one every five days. But we're not going to see a guy who's like a DH. For four out of five games, and then he goes and pitches on the fifth day. That's just not going to happen. It sucks it's not going to happen because I think that would be awesome. You could actually, he could actually be so much more valuable to a team because he doesn't take up an extra roster spot, but I just don't see it happening.
3: No, and it's interesting. I mean, you don't see very many guys like this who can actually hit too. And when uh, when you see a guy like th- that's that has this special type of talent, it definitely makes you you wonder. But yeah, I mean, as far as a National League team, I mean, that's if this guy. It also depends on what he wants to do because I guarantee, you know, when they're interviewing him and him talking about it, he's going to have some kind of a say in what he wants to do. And if he wants to be a uh, if he does want to continue to hit, then you might see American leagues American League teams shy away from him because maybe some guys circle him as a pitcher. Uh, maybe some guys think he plays better as a hitter. I, I don't know. It depends on, on how you're evaluating him as well, uh, how you evaluate him to, to fit your roster. So he's a very interesting player. I think there's going to be a lot more talking about him and, and how uh, he is used. But to me, it's, it's a no-brainer for like the Dodgers. It just He looks like a perfect player for the Dodgers, in my opinion.
2: The, uh, there was something written by Heyman um, that both the Yankees and the Red Sox have acquired the maximum amount of international signing pool money, $8 million, so they can um, they are the two teams in the best spots to sign Otani if he wants to opt out of his current contract in Japan. He's not an uh, a- absolute free agent for another two years, but uh, either way, there's going to be like a $20 million posting fee that has to go up for him, but if he wants to come over to the majors right now, he can in this coming offseason.
3: And I thought I remember hearing people talk about that they are balking that he's going to be included in an international pool uh, signing pool for Otani as well. People were talking about that like he'd be grandfathered in or something. I don't know. Um, it's interesting to see how how that is. A lot of that money is it goes to the Caribbean and goes to a lot of those players, and then you see these Japanese players who are in very different situation because they their rights are owned by another franchise. So it's, a, it's just a totally different situation when you're talking about international signing pool because it's, uh, you know the contracts are different, the way that the money is, is split is different. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out in the offseason and if he actually does um, you know, get, become available.
2: Yeah, the Yankees have also, I don't know how they feel. Obviously they have their own internal feelings about Tanaka, but are they ready to jump back in on a big-time Japanese pitcher right away?
3: Yeah, I don't think they're shied off by that. I mean, I think they've they've gotten some very good stuff out of Tanaka. I think that if you look at the overall, you know, the overall um, contract and what we what the Yankees have gotten from from Tanaka as the the number one pitcher that they thought they were getting, I mean, they pretty much got that guy. That he's he's done what they've asked him to do, um, minus the the first half of 2017. He has been pretty much everything we expected him to be. Uh, they just haven't really they haven't had the team that they thought they were going to have in the beginning of it when they when they brought him over. The offense got old very fast, and unfortunately, they couldn't capitalize on his extremely good years. So, you know, if he's back to what he is and, and, you know, can lead them into the playoffs and and potentially uh, further, then I still think they're getting, you know, everything they thought they were getting from him.
2: If you're a team like the Marlins with Derek Jeter as a new owner, just you got to sign this guy as a two way player. Just bring some fans in.
3: Yeah, I think it'd be, I hope someone does, in all honesty. I think it would be fun to watch. I just oh, don't yeah. think there's just too much money involved for them to, too uh, much risk. to, to, to see a guy. It's way too much risk. You're going to be on the field way too often and for, for any general manager and any owner to feel comfortable with that.
2: Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on Otani before
3: we get out of here? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. If like we have a pitch count, we have an innings limit, is there going to be an at-bat limit? Is there going to be like, okay, a swing limit? I mean, what, how many more limitations can we add? Because I guarantee that's going to be talked about. Is, right. is the amount of swings that he's taking in a game – detrimental to how he's pitching in the 6th and 7th inning against left-handed batters, because that's a problem.
2: Right, and the, the day after he pitches, he probably won't play at all or something like that.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a day, a day, night, uh, you know, is, is he going to, he can't pitch on a getaway game or he can't play on a getaway game. It's going to be, it's going to be absolutely infuriating for the fan base because I guarantee he'll be toyed and there will be Otani rules and it'll be a disaster. <laughs> complete disaster so for that reason only i hope the yankees do not touch him because i don't want to i don't want to have to talk about it i don't want to have to deal with it i don't want the frustration of of uh, of, of the management of this guy because it's going to be a mess
2: well if the yankees do sign him as a pitcher just wait there's going to be so many mailbag questions that we're going to get and so many hours on the podcast dedicated to will they let him hit
3: Especially when you see the guy that he could play whose position or someone in the lineup who is DHing, who's not hitting, and then Otani's yeah, out there. Why is
2: Otani in there? What the hell? Yeah. Why, Girardi's why... a moron. Put he could, could hit when Otani he's not pitching there.
3: every day. Every day he could hit.
2: <laughs> I love it. All right, guys, enjoy the voicemails coming up and happy Labor Day to everybody. I hope you're out on a beach somewhere or in a backyard drinking a few beers. Um, Scott, any last words before we get out of here?
3: Yeah, the Yankees have very, very few days off from, from now leading into the end of the year. There is a, uh, a huge series coming up with the Baltimore Orioles. This is, uh, this, the Orioles are, have come on big time, so the Yankees need to take care of business. They need to really identify this as a threat. We're going to Baltimore. It's a problem. Their offense is ticking. Hopefully the Yankees can keep them at bay because this team looks like they're surging. Um, with them and then the, the, the Twins coming up, Big, a lot of big baseball coming up.
2: Huge. We'll talk to you guys on Thursday.
3: Believe it or not, George, is not at home?
0: Please leave a message at the beep.
3: I must be out
0: before I pick up the phone. Where could I be?
1: <laughs>
0: Believe it or not, I'm not home.
1: Hey, guys. Um... It's Just me, or do the Yankees have to face fucking Kluber and Sale every fucking week? Like, god damn. Like, uh, I don't know. Anyways, so yeah, Sorry, bye. Hey, I'm uh, Vince Rivers, it's Eric from New York. Oh, look at that! Gary Sanchez, another pass ball, it's off of a fucking run. That lazy piece of shit, I've had enough of him. Make him DH, or get him the fuck out of there. Bye bye. I'm watching the Sale
2: severino matchup right now, that top of the fifth just established Severino as the ace of this team, and it's just wonderful watching him pitch like this. Second thing, Jacoby Chief Ellsbury, hottest hitter on the planet. Go Yanks. Aaron Judge is clueless up there. He's guessing and doesn't even know what he's looking for. He looks like a a nun that just walked into a strip book. The only thing I can think of to help would be to call
1: up Jason Giobbi and fast to borrow that leopard song he used when he was in slumps. That's it. It's the only thing that can help now. (laughs) Great win! Look at that 76 jump. Full time great, except for Gallegos, but whatever. Everyone who's right-handed gets great home runs. We got Judge, we got Els, we got not Elsberry, Elsberry, Lefty. We got Frazier, we got Headley. It's awesome, Elber Lefty, great day. Go, Yanks. All right, Andrew from Els' Kitchen. Great win against the Red Shits. I would have hoped it was three out of four. I mean, a sweep, but you know, I'll take three out of four. You know, I hope the offense gets better. I hope the bullpen shuts down these one-run one run games. And yeah, let's fucking win this division. Super fucking pumped right now. It's, it's the biggest fucking series of the year. Dominant pitching, great season. fucking go. fucking take the East. Man, fuck off, Fuck Chris Van. Fuck all of them. I'm glad we took three out of four from them bitches so tired of them I would just to take care of business When the and everything would be straight going into the playoffs I'm just glad that they all out
3: of the Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Bronx Pinstripe Show make sure you find us on iTunes and subscribe so you can get all new episodes directly onto your phone if you do like the show We'd love for you to take a minute and give us a five-star rating and review in iTunes. It really helps us out and allows us to create more shows. We're on Twitter at Bronx Pinstripes and the same on Facebook. You can always find us there talking Yankee baseball. Thanks again, guys, for your support. Really appreciate it. And go Yankees.